You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, grab that and go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, as you're turning there, as Brian already mentioned, we, uh, we have dismissed uh, children up through fifth grade today. We'll do that again in about three weeks because of the uh, subjects that I'll be talking about today, sexuality, in about three weeks, transgender ideologies. Just so you know, parents, our expectation is that right around the fifth grade year, maybe a little earlier for some of you, maybe a little later for others, but right around that fifth grade year, we're expecting you to start having those conversations with your children. So that's why we dismiss up through fifth grade. We want you to talk with your children about these things first, and then we're going to reinforce that here from the the pulpit or our version of the pulpit here, Uh, but you know what I mean. So right around that fifth grade year, and notice I said conversations, plural, not conversation, singular. These are things we need to talk with our children, even grandchildren, uh, on an ongoing basis about. It's never comfortable. It's never easy. It's necessary, though. It's necessary. So with that said, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. But if you don't know your way around the Bible, the verses we're studying today will be on the screen so you can follow along with us here. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, be imitators of God... As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing, as you know, this morning our study in the the book or the letter of Ephesians. By now, you should have your bearings in this letter, those of you that have been around for a number of weeks. But if you're new, in case you're new today, the first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, are all about our new identity, who we are in Christ. And then the final three chapters, chapters four to six, are about our responsibilities, how we live out this new identity that we have in Christ. As Christians, as Christ followers, we are called to live a radically different, recognizably different type of life, different from the world and different from our pre-Christian past self. 
Or as the way Paul put it in chapter 4, the passage we studied a few weeks ago, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self. So the metaphor he used in chapter 4 was the metaphor of clothing, old clothing that needs to be removed, new clothing that needs to be put on. The point is going to remain the same in chapter 5. We are to have a radically different type of life. But the picture, the metaphor is going to change. It's going to change from stripping, stripping off the old self, to walking. Three times in chapter 5 in our passage today, Paul will use the verb walk as shorthand for the type of life we're called to live. Once you see all three of these references in verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness. Now that's, that's bold, isn't it? He doesn't say at one time you were in darkness. He says at one time you were darkness. That was our status. But now you are light. Light in the Lord walk then as children of light. And then in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. What we'll see in this passage this morning is that walking in the light or walking wisely involves an understanding of three themes or topics in particular. And these three topics are vices and why we must avoid them, deceit and how we must reveal it, and worship and why we must value it. Vices, deceit, and worship. Or to make things a little more interesting, sex, lies, and music. Now there's more to the passage than that, but I think that'll get your attention. Sex, lies, and music. Now if those sound like three completely unrelated topics to you, they actually fit together quite nicely. I'll show you how. We'll begin with the first one. Vices and why we must avoid them. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul gives us this list of vices, these wicked behaviors, and he calls us to be so radically different from the world that we don't even have the slightest appearance of these vices. There's not even a hint that these things exist in the Christian community. In fact, they're like Voldemort, he says. They're not even to be named. We don't even talk about them. Meaning, of course, that we don't display them in our lives. These vices must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, the followers of Jesus. Well, what are these, these Voldemort-like vices? They have to do with our bodies, our money, and our mouths. Body, money, mouth first the body notice he uses the term sexual immorality here sexual immorality must not even be named among you the greek word here is the word porneia porneia you can hear in it can't you our english word pornography porneia refers to all sexual activity outside of god's standard all sexual activity outside of God's design. Now that, of course, begs the question, well, what is God's design? 
what is the Christian or the biblical view of sex and sexuality? Well, it's not the cultural view. The cultural view is that sex is God, that it is ultimate. It's the ultimate experience. It's the thing we chase and the thing we cherish. It's the thing we worship. The biblical view is not the cultural view, nor is the biblical view what the culture thinks we believe. It's not that sex is bad. It's not what Christians believe. We don't believe that sex is God, nor do we believe that sex is bad. The Bible does not prohibit sex. God commands us to have sex, actually, in 1 Corinthians 7, but within a certain context. Within a certain context. So the biblical view, the Christian view, is this. Sex is not God. Sex is not bad. Sex, in the language of Genesis, is very good. Very good. God is the creator and the commander of sex. He creates sex and he commands us to have sex within a particular context. And that context is marriage. Which God defines as one man and one woman committed exclusively to each other for life. Committed exclusively to each other for life. See, we sometimes think, even in the church, of sex being a subject that, like, why are we even talking about this on a Sunday morning? We just feel dirty, even bringing the word up. I thought about starting off the sermon today by just having a, okay, audience participation time. We're all going to say the word sex together. Ready? One, two, three, sex. Now, don't we feel so much better, right? It's out there. You can breathe. It's okay. We sometimes convince ourselves that there's something dirty or inappropriate about the subject. Listen to me. God is the creator of sex. It's not as if Adam and Eve were in the garden one day, naked and unashamed, and she tripped, and he fell, and they were like, well, how about that? Look what we just discovered. Look what we invented. No. No. God is the creator, the designer of sex sex. And as the creator, he's also the commander. He tells us the appropriate context. Now that, of course, begs another question. Why would God restrict sex to the context of marriage? One man, one woman committed exclusively to each other for life. Why would he do that? Is it because he's a puritanical prude? Some cosmic killjoy? Well, it can't be that because we've already, we've already established the fact that he's the creator of sex and he commands us to do it. So it can't be that. What then is it? I want you to understand that the Bible restricts sex to a certain context not because the Bible has such a low view of sex but because it has such a high view of sex. Such a high view of it. Let me put it in another way for you. Helen Fisher is a biological anthropologist and an expert on the science of romantic love. Now, her, her book, Anatomy of Love, is a contemporary classic. Her TED Talks, you can look them up later, have millions and millions of views. Fisher writes from a secular, not a Christian, perspective. Her work is endorsed by people like Richard Dawkins, a leading atheist thinker. So Fisher is someone you can listen to even if you don't identify as a Christian. 
She's purely an academic, an anthropologist, and here's what she says about the science of love. Listen to this. Romantic love is an addiction, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well and perfectly horrible when it's going poorly. Romantic love is an obsession. It possesses you. You lose your sense of self. You can't stop thinking about another human being. The main characteristics of romantic love are craving, an intense craving to be with a particular person, not just sexually, but emotionally. Emotionally. Fisher explains some of the neuroscience behind this conclusion that romantic love is an addiction. She says that when we fall for someone, when we become infatuated with them, this has a surprisingly powerful influence on the brain. It impacts the same brain centers as cocaine and with similar intensity. When you sleep with someone, in addition to the physical attachment, there's also a spiritual, emotional attachment. Remember, this is not a Christian talking. This is a secular anthropologist. Sexual climax releases a rush of neurotransmitters and hormones, deepening the attachment, strengthening the addiction. So here's what this secular scientist is arguing. There is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. You can't have a casual sexual partner in the same way that you can't have a casual drug problem. A casual cocaine addiction. By sleeping with someone, you are attaching yourself, addicting yourself to that person. It's scientifically nonsensical to think that we can have casual sex, sleep with as many people as we want, end sexual relationships with no harm, no pain. Now our brains, our brains aren't wired that way. See, from a Christian perspective, the neuroscience makes perfect sense. Sex is a God-given gift with a God-given context. One man, one woman committed exclusively to each other for life. Why did God create sex? What is sex for? For procreation, of course. For pleasure? Absolutely. God is the inventor of pleasure. But there's a third reason, one that we often forget about. If you've ever come to see me for your premarital counseling or for any sort of marriage counseling, there's a resource I always recommend. It's a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And he has a great chapter in the book on this subject of sex in the context of marriage. He says there's a third reason God created sex. Procreation, yes. Pleasure, yes. But also, sex is the relational glue. It's the relational glue. Sex is God's appointed way, he says, God's appointed way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. On your wedding day, you stood in the presence of God. You looked into the eyes of your spouse and you said, in essence, I am yours. Every time you have sex with your spouse, you say, I am all yours. I am still yours. I am only yours. That's the Bible's view of sex. 
Now, married couples, I'll leave you to put that into practice later. For now, we've got to press on. There are other vices we need to discuss. Sexual immorality and all impurity. And then Paul mentions covetousness. Covetousness must not even be named. Now, the word could just as well be translated here as greed. Greed, the ungodly desire to acquire more and more and more for ourselves. And it is indeed ungodly because this is not the behavior we see in God himself. God is not greedy. God is generous. God gave his son. God the Father gave his son for us. God the Son gave himself willingly as the sacrifice for our sins. Hey, if you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus today. He gave his life for you. That's why God has you here today. Sure, he wants you to hear about sex, but he wants you to hear about Jesus most importantly. Repent and believe in him. God is a generous God, a giving God, and he calls us as his people to be generous as he is generous. But are we? Are you generous? I don't know the answer to that. You're going to have to search your own heart and your own life. Are you generous or are you possessed by your possessions? If you have things in your life that you simply cannot give away, then you don't own those things. They own you. Maybe they've owned you for a long time. We'll never become generous, not truly generous, until we understand that, really and truthfully, we're not owners of anything. We're stewards. We're stewards. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. I read this quote earlier this week, and it struck me. Let me see if it strikes you the same way. Lewis says, every faculty you have, every faculty I have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, everything is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like, Lewis says. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot, only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. We'll never become generous, truly generous, until we understand that we don't own anything. Everything in our possession is something that has been given to us by God. We're stewards. And so we're called to be people known for our generosity. I think when Paul warns us about greed here, covetousness, it certainly applies to the greed for financial gain, but I don't think it's limited just to that. I think he's warning us about the desire to acquire personal fame, sexual conquest, whatever it is that we might be tempted to chase and cherish as ultimate to idolize. And then in verse 4, he continues this list of vices. Remember what I told you? Body, money, mouth. The mouth is here in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It seems that Paul is trying to teach us that humor is much like anger. You remember back in chapter 4 when he told us there is a time 
when it's okay to be angry? You can be angry and not be living in sin? Humor is very much like anger. You can use humor. There's a time and a place for it. There are certain expressions that are appropriate. But just like anger, it can easily go too far. It can easily go too far. He's warning us about lewd conversations, dirty jokes, vulgar speech. Now, I think, and this is important, I think this connects back to verse 3. I think it connects back to verse 3, and here's how. Sin is like grapes. It comes in bunches. Sin is like grapes. It comes in bunches. Sexual immorality often begins with sexual conversations. Inappropriate talk in our day, texting, one thing leads to another. We start down that the dark path. See, we tend to think about all the big decisions we have to make in life, and that's good, but we should also be concerned about the little steps along the way. As the Song of Solomon teaches us, it's the little foxes that ruin things. It's the sexual conversations, the inappropriate speech or texting that leads to sexual immorality. We must avoid all of these things, Paul says, and why? Why is it so important that we do so? He's very clear about it in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, no doubt about it, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. These are not the behaviors that mark the person who has a new identity in Jesus. These are not the things that characterize the people of God. So we should avoid them and we should not allow anyone to persuade us otherwise. And that brings us to the second part of the passage. Sex, lies, or deceit. Deceit and how we must reveal it. Look at verse 6. Staying on this same topic, Paul now says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. You're light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And the main thought here is this one that I've highlighted for us. Let no one deceive you. And in context, the deception Paul is talking about is any attempt to justify the ungodly behaviors he's just listed. Any attempt to persuade you that sexual immorality is okay. That greed is okay. Hey, we're, you know, we're Americans. I gotta have this kind of house, this kind of car, whatever. It's just the way we live. Any attempt to persuade you that those vices are actually good things, that's the deception he's talking about here. That's what he's warning us about. You see, just as, just as I am preaching my heart out with every ounce of persuasion I've got this morning, trying to move you away from those vices, there will be others. Influencers and influences who will preach their hearts out, trying to move you toward those vices. There will be all sorts of influences in the world. There might even be some in the church. Paul knows this. And so he warns us about it. Let no one deceive you. So I got to ask you this morning, and I'm going to get 
too close for comfort for just a few seconds here, so go ahead and brace yourself. I've got to ask you, what sort of deceptive influences have been at work in your life? Who have you been listening to or what have you been watching that is luring you toward these vices that Paul has just told us, don't even name them. You know, a lot of what goes by the name entertainment today is pornographic. And if we think that we can have this, this regular diet of filth and have it not affect us, we've been deceived. We've been deceived. Ladies, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. If your husband tells you that that explicit content in that show, whatever that show is, that all that explicit content doesn't really affect him, that he can handle it, he's using what the theologians of old, long, long ago, would call a lie. It's a lie. But there's been significant research done on this subject, and it's conclusive. Pornographic content actually alters the male brain. It does affect us, guys. It deforms us, and eventually it will destroy your marriage. I've seen it happen. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. So what must we do then? We must do what Paul says next. We must develop the discipline of discernment. If there are deceivers out there, and there are, then we must try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To discern is to decide. This is probably the most important spiritual discipline for us today. In an age of information, overload, content, chaos, we must have the discipline of discernment. To discern is to decide. It is to say, this is good and lovely and beautiful and true. That is ugly and evil and error. Therefore, I will receive this and I will reject that. I will accept this and I will avoid that. That's what it means to have discernment. But we need not only the discipline of discernment, we have to have the courage to confront. And that's what Paul talks about in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, reveal them. Now here he's talking about what happens in our churches all the time. A brother or sister in Christ. We're not talking about people in the world here. We're not talking about unbelievers. But a brother or sister in Christ has been lured into the darkness, has made some bad decisions, gotten involved in things that he or she has no business being involved in, and somehow... That's been brought to your attention. Now, assuming that you have a good relationship with that person, Paul also says here that then you then have a responsibility to that person. You're supposed to expose the works of darkness. You go to that person and you do everything you can to speak truth and to bring that person back into the light. Now, when we fail in our churches, as we often do, when we fail, it's usually in one of two ways. The first is cowardice. We're afraid to do that. We're afraid we might offend our brother or sister. We're afraid of what they'll think about us. They'll think we're some sort of prude because, you know, hey, 
Why aren't we doing that too? We're just afraid. We're cowards, and so we do nothing. And we just leave them in the darkness. But the other way we err is not cowardice, but abrasiveness. We might have truth, but we present it in such an unloving way. Both of these are failures. The first is a failure of nerve. The second is a failure of heart. It's never loving to leave the brother or sister in the darkness. It's never loving to do that. The Christian life is life together. We need each other. And that means we go after the struggling brother. We go after the fallen soldier. We need each other. Now that's the negative here, right? A brother or sister who's struggling out in the darkness. But that's not where Paul ends this passage. He doesn't end on a negative point. He ends on a positive. I told you there were three things we had to understand, right? Sex, lies, music. Music or worship. And that's where he takes us in closing. Worship and why we must value it. Look at the end of the passage with me. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, Paul's going to get to the subject of worship. It just takes him a minute to get there. He starts off by talking about our time management. There are three implicit questions here at the end of the passage. And the first implicit question is, what are you going to do with your time? You only have a limited amount of it. Time is non-renewable. You can always make more money. You cannot make more time. What are you going to do with your time? That's the first implicit question. Now, the second implicit question is, who or what will be the controlling influence in your life? And that's what he gets at in verse 18. This is a really strange-sounding verse. Look at it. Do not get drunk with wine. Where did that come from? We weren't talking about wine at all. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is actually the only verse in the whole Bible, only verse in the whole Bible that commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Well, what the heck does that mean? Don't we already have the Spirit living within us? Haven't we talked about that, learned that in this series, that the Spirit has made a home in our heart as believers? So how are we then to be filled with the Spirit? Paying attention to the comparison will help us get the point. Paul says, do not be filled with wine, drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When a person is filled with wine, what does it mean? He's under the influence of wine. He's controlled by the wine, and he's easily recognizable by his folly, right? You can spot a drunk person from a mile away. To be filled with the Spirit, then, is to be under the influence of the Spirit, and to be marked by wisdom. The wisdom and the discernment of God. Yes, the Spirit lives within your heart. Yes, the Spirit has made a home in your heart. But as we've also learned in this series, we can be more or less sensitive to the Spirit's leading. More or less submissive to the Spirit's power. So Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit to be under the influence of the Spirit, led, guided by Him. Well, how does that happen? How does that happen? That's the third and final implicit question 
in this passage, and this is what finally gets us to the subject of worship. Here's how Paul wraps it up. How is it that you and I and our families can be filled with the Spirit? Not how we might think. The Spirit doesn't work in these sudden, magical, mysterious ways. No, the Spirit works through ordinary, objective means. Things like Bible study and prayer. Things like weekly worship. What you and I are doing right now. How will we be filled with the Spirit? Paul says, by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit will work in us, will transform us in our families through ordinary things like coming together on Sunday mornings, gathering with God's people for worship. Now, every element of the worship service is vitally important, but Paul talks in particular about the music here. So music people especially, listen to what he says here. He teaches us three things about music. First, he teaches us that there are actually two audiences, not just one, like we've been taught commonly. Two audiences, not just one. When we sing, of course we're singing primarily to God. We're lifting our voices in praise to Him. But notice that Paul also says we're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When we gather and we sing, other believers hear our voices and they are encouraged. Now, do you see what that means? It means that when you come to this worship service and for whatever reason you choose not to sing, you don't like the music selection that day, maybe you just don't think of yourself as the singing type, what you're really doing is you're missing a huge opportunity to encourage your brothers and your sisters. You're refusing to do ministry that day. There are two audiences, not just one. Notice also he teaches us that there are many styles of music. Many styles. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and songs. There's the diversity that Paul encourages in the worship service. But notice finally that everything must be spiritual. The content of the songs must be spiritual, meaning spirit-inspired, which we will know by its Christ-centered content. See, the Holy Spirit has a spotlight ministry. His ministry is to shine the light on the sun. So we know a song is a spiritual song when it shines the light on the sun, when it lifts up the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a teaching element to the lyrics of the songs in worship, and that's what Paul sees as primary. So putting all this together, what you're doing right now, the decision you made to come to this place on this day, this is you being formed, the power of God working in you. Far too often we think, and I know I say this from time to time because I think we're just so prone to forget it. Far too often we think of the Sunday morning worship gathering as something that is supposed to entertain us. And so we compare it to other things that might be more entertaining. Look, man, we're never going to compete with Disney World around here. And you know what? We're not trying to. We're really not. 
The goal here is not entertainment. This is much less like an amusement park, and it's much more like a gymnasium. The difference is this is the gymnasium for your heart. This is a spiritual workout. That's what happens when we gather as God's people around his word, lifting our voices in praise. As everything out there in the world is trying to deform you and deform your family, this is where you come to be formed. For your hearts to grow and to value the things that God himself values and to find the power and the strength you need to avoid the things that he calls us to avoid. I think it was Martin Luther who once said that there are two sounds that the devil despises. Two sounds the devil despises. One is the silence of a Christian studying his Bible. Silence of a Christian studying his Bible. And the other is the singing of God's people gathered for worship. So let's sing. Let's pray and then let's sing. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning as your people. We realize that right now our hearts are being formed. and We thank you for that. Your spirit is at work in this very ordinary thing we're doing of, of just gathering together, opening the Bible, lifting our voices in praise, speaking to you in prayer. These are the things that change us, that strengthen us. Because there's so much in the world that seeks to destroy us. There are so many enticements. And I'm sure there are many of us in this room this morning who are struggling. We're struggling with different expressions of sexual immorality. We're struggling with greed. We're struggling with an inability to control our mouths. We say things we know we shouldn't. Lord, free us from these things. By the power of your spirit within us, free us from these things. For those who are convicted this morning and they know they need help, Give them the courage to ask for it. To go to a brother or sister they trust. To humble themselves. To seek out the help they need. For the marriages that aren't in the best place right now, God, we ask you to bring healing. We know you can do that. You are the great healer. We've seen your healing power so many times before. We know you can do it again. As a first step, I pray that you will give husbands and wives the courage to talk to each other. To talk about their struggles. Talk about the things they're feeling. Talk about their needs. Their confusions, their questions. And as those conversations happen, God, we ask your spirit to work. Thank you for your grace, your goodness, 
new each and every day. In Jesus' name.